Chapter forty one, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty one, part one. Ever since my tractate, Natural History of the Devil was published, Albany, 1859, I had continued my studies in demonology, and I was pretty well prepared for the four lectures which I was to give at the Royal Institution. In 1866, on Washington's birthday, February 22nd, I had given in that august place a Friday evening lecture on New England. But a full philosophical and anthropological course was a more serious matter. I had studied the demonology of Russia, Germany, and France fairly well, but learned that I should see some old images in Rome where I had never been. So in February 1872 I passed a fortnight in that city. Robert Browning told me to be sure and see an ancient fresco on the front wall of the church Boca della Verita. It represented, he said, Ceres amid the corn on one side, and Bacchus amid the grapevines on the other. From Ceres was sent down a stream of meal, from Bacchus a stream of wine, which together formed the Eucharistic bread and wine on an altar below. On my arrival in Rome I was met by my cousin Frederick Daniel, former secretary of legation, who spoke Italian fluently. He was my companion during my sojourn. But we found no picture on any wall of the Bocca della Verita. The façade had been whitewashed but I detected at one or two edges traces of color. I mentioned to W. W. Story, the American sculptor, what his friend Browning had told me, and he sent me to Signor Rosa, Minister of Fine Arts. Rosa, descendant of Salvatore Rosa, and an able man, learning that we had been sharply told by the sacristan and a priest that there had never been any such picture, accompanied us to the place, and was satisfied that the fresco had been covered over. He had hopes that the whitewash, rather old, could be removed, declared the fresco's destruction criminal, and said he would at once make an effort to recover it. But twenty years later the fresco was still hidden. Boca de la Verita, Mouth of Truth, thus suppressed a truthful pictorial witness to the sanctity of Ceres transmitted to Mary, the mother of Jesus. The long devotion of women to Ceres rendered it necessary for the early Christians to exalt some woman in her place, the continuance of the old cult being represented, no doubt, in the word ceremony. To Mary Magdalene passed the cult of Venus, preserved probably in the word venerable. At Oberammergau I observed on the stage architrave a painting of the Madonna holding the rose of Bertha, the Teutonic Ceres the crimson flower symbolizing the heart ever watching over the household. Jesus called the Holy Spirit his mother. In Rome I visited a schoolmate of my childhood, a lovely and lovable Virginia lady whose husband was a clergyman, preaching to an American congregation in Rome. She told me that some years before, on her arrival in Rome, she made the acquaintance of a sweet neighbor, a devout Catholic lady, to whom, for she knew Italian, she became deeply attached. After a year of warm friendship I was troubled by the reflection that this exquisite lady should be under the delusions of Catholicism, and felt it my duty to converse with her on the subject. 
what was my surprise to find out that she had long felt the same concern about me. After our long talk, she said with tears, Alas, you do not know the happiness of communion with our blessed mother. Then throwing arms around me, she cried, Promise me, O oh my dear friend, promise me, if only for my sake, that this night you will offer up one prayer to our blessed mother. Ah, oh, what happiness and peace will fall on your heart! Now what could I do? I did not venture to ask my friend, the clergyman's wife, whether she promised and offered the prayer, but said, Did you desire to deprive the Italian lady of her blessed mother? Oh, no! was the reply. General Sherman was in Rome, and Signor Rosa invited me to go out to Ostio, with a small party gathered for the American officer. I could not regard Sherman's famous march, destroying the homes and fields of poor and undefended families, as heroic, but inter arma silenta corda. Though not so interesting as his brother the senator, General Sherman was good-natured and sociable. He was a tall, handsome man, as Rosa was, and it was interesting to see the military general learning like a child from the art general meanings of ancient symbols and figures. Here were pre-Christian monuments. Isis with serpent, Mithras slaying the bull, Apollo Sauroctonus, lizard slayer, and other antique forms which may have suggested to Sherman that these heroes were his forerunners crushing ancient confederate rebellions but the realm of mythology is harder to conquer than southern villages. Heine, in his delightful essay, The Gods in Exile, shows the classic divinities out at elbows, wandering in wood and wilderness, but had the brilliant genius been in Rome in 1872, he might have discovered that the gods and goddesses had found new and gayer temples and worshippers than any priesthood ever gave them. The carnival was in full fling. On the side of a temple of Jove, the French theatre was displaying all the gods and goddesses in Offenbach's Orpheus, the goddesses being costumed seductively enough to attract the wealthy and fashionable, while the poor were sparsely kneeling in churches. At two fancy masquerades which I attended, one at the Apollo, the other at the Argentina, superb beauties from all parts of the world were dancing as Bacchanals, Graces, Nymphs, and Aphrodites. One of the handsomest women I saw in Rome was Madame Ratazzi, of the Baltimore Bonapartes, whom my cousin John M. Daniel loved, but left for a confederate grave in Virginia. One day, my cousin was not with me, I directed my driver to the Lateran Museum, but he took me to the St. John Lateran Chapel, where I began lightly walking up the sacred stairway. Finding a woman going up on her knees, it flashed on me that it was the Scala Santa on which no foot must tread, because thereon Jesus ascended to the judgment hall of Pilate. I hurried down, but it was too late. Several guardians were screaming at me from below, not daring to come up even to arrest me. I was taken to the bureau, and having found someone who could talk English, explained and deplored the accident, offering to obtain a certificate from the American minister, Marsh, who knew me. My apology was murmuringly received by the keepers of the stairway who ought to have been on hand when I entered. My impression was that the excitement was not so much because of the sanctity of the stairway, as on account of the fact that it was while going up on his knees Luther had revolted, descended on his feet, and abandoned Rome forever. 
I once had the misfortune to go into a mosque without taking off my shoes, but the admonition in that case was gently given, and no vexation caused. In Rome I was afterwards cautious, but nevertheless irritated the sacristan at San Giorgio. He showed me the relics of St. George, the spear, vexillum, saddle, wherewith he'd met the dragon. But so great was my interest in dragon-slayers that I imprudently asked him if there existed any relic of the dragon. Without any reply he swiftly shut the case and hurried away, slamming the door after him. On my way back to London I stopped a day in Florence to see the venerable sculptor Hiram Powers, with whom I talked about our mutual friends in Cincinnati, and about Hawthorne. The evening was passed at the house of Professor, now Senator, Villari, the most interesting Italian I met, his wife being an accomplished English lady. Villari told a curious anecdote concerning an American poet whom I knew, Thomas Buchanan Reed. He had come to Florence many years before with his attractive young wife, and brought him, Villari, a letter of introduction. One night, it was Mardi Gras, he was called up in the night by Reed, who told him his wife was dead. Hurrying to the lodgings, he found there two physicians who declared that she had died of Asiatic cholera. Mrs. Reed was the first victim of the last plague in Florence. Villari sat up beside the dead lady all night with Reed, who read aloud all of his own poems. It was a fearful night, said the professor. There I sat, feeling that the dread plague was in our city. The street was filled with noisy masqueraders, their lights and figures flashing across the walls of the room, their laughter and shouts mingling with Reed's voice steadily reading his poems. It was awful, like something from Dante's Inferno. An exceptional amount of work awaited me in London. Each week in March had to be devoted to the rewriting of the lecture of that week at the Royal Institution, and my wife had to attend to our social duties almost alone. Every year the spring brought to our doors friends from America, or persons introduced by them, and every week we gave a dinner that they might meet English people. Meanwhile our three children, the girl aged four, required attention, and we were uncommonly glad when August vacation brought us opportunity to seek the seaside. We had pleasant remembrance of the fortnight at Trouville in 1867. Its Arcadian simplicity inspired an article in Harper, Trouville, a new French paradise. We had lived in a charming hotel, taking our meals out under the trees, and all at an absurdly low price. But when we arrived in 1872 at the same hotel, the cost was nearly doubled. Mine host said he had many applicants from America, and showed me my own article in Harper, in which I had imprudently mentioned the name of his hotel. When I told him I had written the article, I was not sure that he believed me. It certainly did not affect my bills. Finding that Georges Sand was in Trouville, I obtained a note of introduction to her from Louis Blanc, and meeting her is among the cherished memories of my life. She had no apartments in which to receive anyone, but only two bedrooms, one for her two grandchildren, who made pleasant acquaintance with my children. Our own situation was similar, so our natural place of meeting was on the sands, where she walked daily. She had her grandchildren to look after, those for whom she wrote Le Géant Yéhou, and Les Ailles de Courage, and we had ours, and our meetings amounted to little more than salutations and appreciations of the scenery. 
and seaside play of life. We conversed a little about our beloved Louis Blanc, with whom she had shared the visions and hopes of 1848, but these had long vanished, leaving her at sixty-eight the serene happiness of a genius which, having created a beautiful world for mankind, who had refused to enter it, found it now returned to her as her own palace, its walls adorned by the faces and forms with which her supreme art had transformed to beauty the stalks and stones of nature. I did not try to have a philosophical or literary conversation with Georges Sand. I had no such mastery of her language nor she of mine, as would have enabled me to give any expression to my homage, which those searching eyes of hers could recognize better without my trying to stammer. But I told her that I had made her acquaintance through Lelia, which the most intellectual of American women, Margaret Fuller, had given to the greatest of American philosophers, Emerson, who had given it to me. With her uncanny reputation I had made acquaintance in boyhood, for I remember my mother and some other ladies conversing with bated breath of one Madame du Devant, of whom an engraving had appeared showing her in man's dress. Why was that shocking? A problem was then, about my fourteenth year, grafted in me. In May 1853 Emerson gave me Woman in the Nineteenth Century, in which Margaret Fuller reveals that she is fascinated by Georges Sand, noble in nature but clouded by error and struggling with circumstances, and quotes Mrs. Browning's two sonnets to her. Ten years later, when I was leaving Concord for England, 1863, Emerson gave me Lelia to read on my journey. It is the edition of 1841, with the prefatory apologia. But this I needed not. Margaret Fuller and Mrs. Browning were both in this brain of Georges Sand. Nay, all the aspiring and discontented women known to me in America—poets, orators, reformers—were the offspring of Georges Sand, endeavouring to build in the new world a palace for women, so perfect that the monastic retreat of Lelia, tossed between faith and atheism, and the pavilion of her courtesan sister, Pulcheria, with her cult of pleasure, should vanish away forever. In the storm and stress of anti-slavery struggle and grapple with dogma, I did not go farther into Georges Sand's writings at that time. At a more convenient season I will call for thee. But I knew she was the peer of the greatest of her contemporaries—Carlyle, Emerson, Dickens, Thackeray, Browning, Tennyson, Hawthorne and I was conscious of a certain awe when I stood in her presence. She was not beautiful, but much more than that. Fair, refined, candid, with a countenance of queenly elevation mingled with gracious simplicity and sensibility. Ne cherche pas en moi ces profonds mystères, said Lélia to Stenio. Mon âme est sûre de la vôtre. Vous la contristez. Vous l'effrayez et la soudain ainsi. Prenez-la pour ce qu'elle est, pour une âme qui souffre et qui attend. It was enough, then, to meet this admirable lady on the sands, to exchange salutations, to see her smiling with my wife as her grandchildren and my children made acquaintance. But I could not help recalling the old gossip about her terrible male attire when we were looking upon the ladies of fashion disporting themselves in the sea, some in diaphanous costumes, or racing along the beach with bare legs. 
It was part of my duty as an American correspondent to call on President Thiers in his villa at Trouville. At an appointed hour I was pleasantly received by his four secretaries, of whom neither spoke English, and ushered into the presence of the President, who was conducting momentous negotiations with Germany and England without knowing the language of either country. Thiers' thick-set form supported a brachiocephalic head and intellectual face. He was precisely the same cheery old gentleman I had seen five years before at the Emperor's reception, as if the wars with Germany and the Paris Commune were only a passing nightmare. I could not take the old monarchist seriously as the President of the New Republic. He was a name from the defunct firm commissioned to carry its goodwill to the new one. I had desired to talk with Thiers of the evils of the bicameral legislature in America, as France was about to frame a constitution, but I could not argue the matter in French. When the convention was in prospect, I expressed to Louis Blanc my hope that they would not follow that fatal example of the United States in instituting presidency and a bicameral legislature. He had already resolved to oppose these measures, and at his suggestion I wrote my little work entitled Republican Superstitions. Proof sheets were sent to him, and I received the subjoined letter dated October 7, 1872. As early as 1846 I published a paper in which I endeavored to show that the establishment of a second chamber was fraught with unmitigated evils, and afforded but a sham remedy for the political dangers it was intended to ward off. By the end of 1848, just at the time when Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte was coming forward as a candidate for the presidential office, I thought it my duty to point out the direful consequences likely to flow from the election of a president. The solemn warning I then gave to my countrymen was expressed as follows. Whenever a man and an assembly stand face to face, that assembly brings with it a dissous, and that man has behind him a dissuit brumaire. But as you have rightly observed, there are political as well as religious superstitions, nor are the former more easily uprooted than the latter. At the time alluded to, it seemed next to impossible that there should be a republic without a president. A strange aberration, this, more especially on the part of the French, as they had been taught by experience how readily a president or consul is turned into an emperor. However, the warning was disregarded and on the 2nd of December, 1851, we had to undergo the unspeakable humiliation of another dix-huit My prediction was thus fulfilled, even sooner than I had expected. Whether we shall know how to turn to account the lesson we have repeatedly received remains to be seen. I hope it will be so. Certain it is that nowadays many are they in the Republican Party who consider the presidential office as a mere stepping-stone to ascend the throne. If others have some doubt as to the necessity, both of a president and a second chamber, it is because they are under the impression that the system works well in the United States. To correct such an error is to do good service to the cause of republican institutions. End of letter. In the autumn, 1872, when my republican superstitions was in press, Charles Sumner passed through London. He had been spending a month in Paris to regain strength and was on his way home feeling better. He said that before leaving Paris he had a conversation with Gambetta. 
I said to him that the greatest trouble of France was that they had no religion. What Gambetta's answer was, Sumner did not tell me. I asked what he meant by religion, but he only talked about the pleasure he felt in listening to the litany. When I knew him in Washington, 1854 to 1863, I never suspected him of being interested in religion, nor of church-going, and now reminded him of the hostility of nearly all the American churches to the anti-slavery movement up to the war. He was thinking, however, of the French leaders like Gambetta, and no doubt felt their republicanism was too merely political, and not religious enough. But I was left a good deal to conjecture, for he seemed hazy on the matter. I then told him of my forthcoming book. With regard to the bicameral legislature, he said that all the American states had the system, which worked fairly well. But I reminded him that our state senates were not, like the federal senate, the creatures of disproportionate representation. He had never gone into that subject, but with regard to presidency he had much to say, which he was glad to have me make notes of, and use as I pleased for all my former criticisms of one or another action in the past were erased by the stand he had taken against the usurpations of President Grant. The old emotion with which I had sat beside his bedside in Washington when he was felled by the bludgeon of slavery had stirred in me again when, fifteen years later, he was struck down officially by a military president whose warlike scheme he had defeated, and not only officially, the vindictive blow which had degraded him from his committee chairmanship in the Senate, and degraded his friend Motley in London, thereby shattering that historian's health, had brought back the sequel of slavery's blow. He stood there in London telling me all that story, with a quivering lip when he mentioned Motley, and his words were only less eloquent than his white hairs and haggard face at sixty. Sumner had no need to refute the accusations made by Grant against him and Motley. In the Golden Hour, 1862, I wrote, "'Today, should the war end, the masses would seize the man, whose hand reeked most with human blood, and bury him to the White House.' It could not surprise me that the warrior's civil administration should be marked by the craft and deceptions that won victories in the field. I omit, therefore, Senator Sumner's narrative of his struggle with President Grant, and quote, as written down at the time, his closing words. We have arrived at a period when the personal power of a president is almost irresistible. For many years the powers of checking his will in Congress have been becoming weaker, until a single act of resistance now requires every sinew and nerve which the nation can bring to bear through its representatives. The evil has gone on until the chief magistrate has come to regard constitutional opposition to any scheme of his own, in the light of a rebellion or a crime which the executive must punish. We fairly parallel the condition of things in Great Britain nearly a century ago when the House of Commons adopted a resolution declaring that the influence of the Crown has increased, is increasing, and ought to be diminished. The military spirit fostered by the late war, and increased by the election of General Grant, has brought this formidable tendency to a climax. If Grant be re-elected, no one can contend that it is because he is regarded by the American people as the worthiest citizen to be their head. It will be due entirely to the army of office-holders, representing a complete organization of drilled and interested persons who, having forced him on the country as a candidate, are devoting the whole resources of the government 
and a power of patronage not possessed by any other monarch in the world, to the one purpose of his re-election. End of quote. What remedy is there for this? I asked. It is a long work, longer, I fear, than our people are aware of. The first step would seem to be the limitation of every president to a single term. This would prevent his using his enormous patronage to prolong his power. But, I said, might not an ambitious or selfish president, if unable to secure re-election, use it for some other advantage, perhaps pecuniary, or perhaps to elect some favorite to be his successor? A relative, perhaps his son, would not an executive commission be safer? It is by no means certain, said Sumner, that the Republic may not be eventually compelled to preserve itself by the total destruction of the one-man power. And so I parted from the brave and true statesman, never to see him again, but rejoicing that as his first speech in the Senate was against slavery, his last was against the pomp of war. No warrior ever showed more courage than Sumner, when on his return from Europe he moved in the Senate that the names of the battles won by the Union Army should be removed from the Army Register and from the regimental colors. This was the sage Mencius saying once more, Let those who have conquered an enemy be not elated, but dispose themselves in the order of a funeral. The array of historic facts in my Republican superstitions was utilized by Louis Blanc, and he had some following, but Gambetta would not lead in the matter. Gambetta's speaking from the tribune was captivating, but in private, and in conversation, he impressed me as a French Disraeli, brilliant, subtle, cynical, and without faith in principles. The engineering of the Constitution was in the hands of Monsieur Dufour, an insidious man, who did not attempt to answer arguments against presidency and bicameralism, but simply appealed to the example of the United States. Without any criticism at all, there was adopted in the new Constitution a principle which would enable a president to make a coup d'état like that of Louis-Napoleon with perfect security. The Constitution, after providing that any member of the government may be impeached, provides also that the act and articles of impeachment shall be signed by the president. As the president would not, of course, sign an act for his own impeachment, he is practically unimpeachable. I found even Renan without any knowledge of this clause. At the house of Theodore Stanton in Paris I dined with two French senators, old workers of the extreme left, who had been in the convention that framed the Constitution. When I expressed my surprise that the President was secured from impeachment, they both exclaimed, "'You are quite mistaken, monsieur. Every official in the government can be impeached.' When Stanton had produced a copy of the Constitution, and I had pointed out the clause requiring the President's signature to authorize any impeachment, the two senators were astounded, and also humiliated. They confessed that this clause had been embodied in the Constitution without any discussion, and without their notice." Landor represents Thomas Paine as saying that the French were more interested in the making of a salad than in the framing of a constitution. Fortunately, the presidents are apt to be as little versed in constitutional law as others, and perhaps few of them have been any more aware of their immunity than the two old senators. But I have no doubt that Dufour and his clique meant to restore a certain absolutism under the title of president, and to do away with coup d'état by making them constitutional. 
The prophecy of the Parisian I met at Brussels and cabled to the New York world that if Paris fell into the hands of King William, it would be amid a carnage unparalleled in history, was fulfilled in the so-called Communaire, Reign of Terror. The Napoleonic column in Paris had been pulled down, and the monument of both Napoleons had risen to the graves at Gravelotte and Sedan, and the blackened walls of the Tuileries, and the loss of Alsace and Lorraine. With such a record, Napoleon III came to England, an exile in the land where for twenty years some of the best men of France had found asylum. At about the same time that this emperor was being courted by snobbery, communards were finding asylum in that world metropolis, London, impartial as nature between good and evil. I had no sympathy whatever with any violence, but some conception of the terrific sufferings of those long-oppressed people. Among the exiles in London was Elie Reclus, a brother of the eminent geographer, and himself an accomplished savant. He and his family were charming people, and the narrative he gave us of the tragedies he saw, and from which he narrowly escaped, were thrilling. He declared that he and others, who were momentarily expecting to be carried out to execution, were in such a state of exultation, that they were almost disappointed when the massacres were stopped. Some of the groups of communards, ranged along a wall to be shot to death, sang cheery songs and laughed aloud yet not one of them believed in any future life. End of chapter 41 Part 1